This morning, numbers confirming what we see and feel all around us. The American Psychological Association finding nearly 80 percent of adults say the coronavirus is a significant source of stress in their life. Next tonight, the emotional toll the pandemic is taking on American children. Parents noticing a significant rise in depression and anxiety. We're in the midst of a mental health epidemic right now, and I think it's only going to get worse. You don't think the worst is over? No, not at all. No, I think in a way the worst is yet to come. There is a hidden epidemic stemming directly from the first pandemic, a psychological pandemic. Illness, loss of loved ones, social isolation, economic insecurity, disruption of routine have taken an enormous toll on mental health. Depression, anxiety, suicides, and drug use are all on the rise. All this making mental health services more important than ever. But how do you deliver mental health services during COVID-19? It has led us to revision mental health and substance use treatment. I'm Melissa Bailey principal at Bowling Business Strategies. I spent the better part of 20 years working for the state of Vermont, primarily in mental health. Mental health is something we all have, just like physical health, and it's on a continuum. I'm Raquel Maison-Jeffers, program officer at the Nicholson Foundation and a self-professed advocate. And by that, I mean someone who has worked inside state government, holding a deep commitment to transforming health systems to improve outcomes for more people. Welcome to State of Mind, where two former state leaders explore new ways to a better mental health system. We are ready to stop tinkering at the edges of change. Systemic racism is not new, but the last year has shined a bright light on just how pervasive it is. The fact is, it is present in the very fabric of our society, from law enforcement and criminal justice to education, and yes, healthcare as well. The effects are seen in families, schools, and neighborhoods through the lens of poverty, violence, hopelessness, and the lack of opportunities. We are at an inflection point. The recent verdict acknowledging the murder of George Floyd is an important step in ensuring accountability and dismantling systemic racism. But if we truly wanna change, we have to first understand and acknowledge our failures and biases. On today's episode of State of Mind, Cultural Reflections Reducing Bias, we will explore how racism and implicit bias have contributed to poor health outcomes, spanning from racial disparities in COVID deaths to mental illness and substance misuse. Our guest today is Dr. Dana Crawford, a pediatric and clinical psychologist who developed the Crawford Bias Reduction Theory and Training. Welcome to State of Mind, Dr. Crawford. Thank you so much for having me and for amplifying this really important topic. Absolutely. Uh, first, can you explain what is meant by implicit bias and how it is similar or different than other biases and how pervasive it is in the healthcare field? Yeah, so implicit bias really has to do with the ways that we are unaware of the misunderstandings, the interpretations that we have um, of our patients, of our colleagues, and I would also dare say the people we are supervising, um, our trainees and postdocs. 
how pervasive it is, I actually think of racism, prejudice, and bias as a socially transmitted disease that we are all infected with. So I would dare say this is a human condition and the pervasiveness is wherever humans are. And although science can be objective, uh, humans that are implementing it are not. And so the pervasiveness is everywhere that we are and the ways that it shows up is in every single medical intervention. Um, the questions we ask our patients, our perceptions of their ability to answer those questions, their understanding of those questions, um, what we think is best practice for them. It's everywhere. It's the fabric of the things that we're doing. I would dare say that bias is a humanitarian crisis. Yeah. And, and how does it in fact affect patients and their ability to get well? Yeah, so if we think of racism specifically, bias in general, and I, I say both of those because of intersectionality, right? So you were to say, okay, is it just about race? I can't disentangle my identity as a black woman um, and just say race and just say gender, there's intersectionality. So I think it's crucial that we talk about um, bias, prejudice and racism together. And so I, I mentioned it's a socially transmitted disease. And so what does that mean? It means that the television we consume, um, the lessons we were taught by our family, the lessons we learned in our classrooms and the medical school, all of those things inform the interpretation and the practices we're having. So one, for example, that I often have heard growing up is um, you have to be a strong black woman or black women are so strong and you see all of these memes and ideas about black excellence and black girl magic, right? And so say you're a physician, or your nurse or front desk worker is looking at their Facebook or whatever their social media is, um, like we all do as humans. I think it's a few of us maybe that are still free of social media. And you see these images of black excellence and black strength. And then you have a black female patient that's coming in who's pregnant and she is sharing her pain. And in your mind, you've been programmed to see so much strength that you don't listen to that pain because you think, oh, she's fine. Black women are so strong. And so you don't acknowledge the pain on the level that maybe you would if that was a different body reporting that pain. And we know from research that um, medical trainees as, as recently as 2020 perceive that black people have less sensitive nerve endings um, and thicker skin, right? And so that social programming results in you not acknowledging her pain and possibly not prescribing pain management. And so it shows up in those little things that are not objective, it's very subjective. Pain is a very subjective phenomenon. And so the provider that is doing that assessment in that bias could in fact engage in a practice that could result in her death because pain is also a symbol or, or rather a sign that something is not right in the body. And speaking of not right in the body, and given what we've been facing this last year, as far as COVID pandemic is concerned, um, what do you think has been the biggest challenges highlighted during the COVID pandemic related to bias and racism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is an interesting question. You know, I, I think about it quite often. And on first glance, I feel tempted to um, answer in a way that centers whiteness, uh, an answer that says, okay, this is the experience of white people, this is the experience of people of color, and then compare those. 
But instead, um, I'm going to fight that urge and really focus on what is it like to have the experience of COVID as a person of color in general, a Black person specifically. Um, and one of the things that really comes up for me is this concept of John Henryism. It's a really amazing concept. It's based in African-American folklore. It was developed by, um, what's his name, Sherman James in like the 70s, around this idea of John Henry, who was this mighty man, the folklore is that he fought a steam engine um, to prove that he was stronger than the steam engine and he beat the steam engine and then he died. And so when I think about the impact of COVID for Black people specifically and people of color in general, it's the ways that we have had to show up as essential workers um, for the mission, for the vision, for um, the foundation of society and healthcare and food service delivery and the delivering of all our online goods um, in a timely way. And we were the essential workers. And so John Henryism is all about the ways that people of color show up, um, continue to fight, continue to serve, and then suffer physically for that very concept. So that's the first piece. And I often see my black brothers, sisters, and non-binary siblings um, talking about like not giving up, being dedicated, showing up and you see these beautiful murals. I live in New York and you see these murals dedicated to essential workers and posters. Oh, thank you so much for your service. Um, but the thank you is not often driven by how can we help you heal? How can we support you? So I think it's the price of being an essential worker. The second is really environmental racism. When people were talking about concepts around social distancing, if someone in your home has COVID, distance yourself. Space in itself is such a privilege. Um, and when we think about envir environmental racism and the ways that people have access to the resources that will keep them safe, it shows up there. Um, and I think the, the biggest and the most painful is the impact of you know, decades of medical racism and what it means to have trusted medical systems for care for years and then become very aware of the ways that medical racism show up and then completely lose trust in a system and then need a vaccine from that same system and need to be COVID tested and have to trust a system that has experimented, um, that has oppressed and then now we need it. And so I see you know, so many people I care about not getting vaccines, um, not getting tested, even sometimes not wearing masks. And I've heard conversations about people not having enough education, but I would dare say it's not about not having enough education. It's the lack of trustworthiness of the medical system that has resulted in once again, um, people of color not receiving optimal medical care. Yeah. I think this has been a year of feeling like things are bigger than our own personal control and are very outside of our control. And as you talk about implicit bias and racism as a socially transmitted disease, I often wonder, you know, where can we begin to think about undoing this, this conditioning that has been handed down intergenerationally. And I know that you developed the Crawford bias reduction theory. Can you please share with us um, what led you to develop the theory? Yeah, honestly, it, it started for me, um, I would dare say that I've been interested in anti-racism work since the womb, um, but as a, a theorist, it started when I was an undergrad in grad school. 
I went to school in this small rural college town, Oxford, Ohio, surrounded by llama farms. Um, I didn't even know llamas needed to be on farms um, and a lot of corn. And um, it was so many lovely people, really kind hearted. It was a really similar time as right now, which I call the cultural consciousness wave, where something so racistly egregious occurs that all of society says, this is terrible we have to do better, stop racism. And at that time when I was applying to grad school it was right after Hurricane Katrina. And it was all of the ways that we saw the environmental racism of Katrina and people were like, this is terrible. And you started to see very similar narratives as now where we're like, we need more diversity in our institutions. Um, we need less racism. This happens over and over again in our society. And so it was right off of that wave and the faculty were pushing for diversity. And I was admitted to the most diverse class with some lovely faculty who had done some work related to diversity, but not implicit bias um, and not uh, equity and inclusion. And so the work was really um, developed with this idea that I know some lovely people who are racist and that this is not a moral issue. You can be racist um, and still a good person. It's the actions that differentiate us, not necessarily the thinking. And so the theory is really about helping people understand what does racism, prejudice, and bias look like even when you're a really great, well-intentioned person. Can you talk a little bit about what a training or a session might look like and what the impact of that could be on the mental health system or the healthcare system? Um, after an organization or an individual went through your um, theory? Yeah, it really starts with this premise of the STD, of the socially transmitted disease. You can be a good person and still have racism, bias, and prejudice. The second is recognizing the utility of racism, which is to really sort um, generate and identify resources. You know, it's a resource distribution system. That's why race is different in different countries. Um, and it's not just based on race, it's gender and other social categories. Um, the other piece is recognizing the role that fear plays in resources, that when you're afraid of those resources, and that might be intellectual resources, it may be related to your parenting, it may be related to your housing, whatever it is, we all have things that we're afraid of losing. Um, and so it's recognizing that system interface with social um, categories and social identities. And that's the awareness piece. The next is investigating. What does it look like when you're afraid of losing resources? What does it look like when you're activated by racism, prejudice, and bias? And then the last piece is a reduction where we really get into doing what I call um, real plays and learning how to repair cultural ruptures. What will you say? What are the actual words and helping people move their jaw? Racism is so uncomfortable. Many times we don't know what to do. We have all had those experiences where something happened and you felt terrible and you're like, I wish I would have said something. I don't know what to say. You lay in bed at night. You're like, oh my gosh, I should have. And then you're just like, you have a moral in uh, injury to yourself and you're like, ah, I thought I could do better. And so the trainings are really about helping people understand that we as individuals are also institutions. It's not some boogeyman in the sky that is institutional racism. Instead, institutional racism is us. We are institutions. And when we recognize ourselves as institutions, we then have the power to change institutions rather than just being victim to them. Yeah. Um, so you talked about how at the root of some of our uh, racist institutions is this uh, fear of losing something. What do we, uh, to flip that around, what can we gain if we 
for example, in the mental health and addiction system, begin to really address implicit bias? Yeah, I think the biggest one is efficiency. Racism is highly inefficient. It results in, you know, there's so many studies that talk about the economic impact of racism alone. We have underutilized services. We have um, people that do not have effective treatments and then they have to go through multiple rounds of using um, the same system over and over again. We see burnout, we see weathering, we see compassion fatigue, we see trauma, all of these things that happen when we engage um, in racist behaviors, implicit bias, and we're driven by our fears and resources. So the biggest thing that we have to gain is efficiency. And I would dare say America um, has previously was a country of innovation. And we have lost that, that same process of innovation, of questioning. When we have diversity, equity, and inclusion, and belonging in systems, we do those things better. Um, and so the biggest thing that we have to gain is innovation and efficiency, um, and just really being better at all of the work that we're doing. So just lastly, Dr. Crawford, um, is there one piece of advice or um, effort that you would say leaders in the system should make in order to really address what we're discussing here? Absolutely. I think that the most critical piece is to have measurable goals, SMART goals. So many times we see egregious things happening and the organization decides to have a diversity training. Um, and that's not going to do it. If people are just talking about things, that's not going to be changed. Yes, talking is a first step, but what are the measurable goals? What are our SMART goals? Where do we want to go? And I challenge leaders to really get concrete. And even the diversity trainings that you're doing, asking about outcomes, asking about measurement, um, making real goals, um, and then also reporting those goals out to your institutions where there is accountability. Thank you, Dr. Crawford. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for having me. Please join us for the next episode of State of Mind. Thanks for listening.